We return again this morning to our series of sermons entitled, O Perfect Redemption, a study on the perfection of the atonement of Christ through the lens of the controversial question, for whom did Christ die? And we've seen how the doctrine of the extent of the atonement is inextricably linked to the design and nature of the atonement, really to the gospel itself. And therefore, we've seen that the matter of the extent of the atonement is intensely practical because it has significant implications for our understanding of the character of God as well as the virtue of Christ. We've learned that a glorious, unique, bottomless fount for worship. What a glorious, unique, bottomless fount for worship is a well-informed understanding of the design and nature of Christ's sacrifice. To have an absolutely sovereign God who loves his people unfailingly and who can never fail to bring his saving purposes to pass. To have an absolute champion of a Savior who with shoulders broadened stands in the place of his people and bears every ounce of the punishment, the wrath, the condemnation that his people are owed because of their sin, drains the cup of divine wrath to its dregs and infallibly secures every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places for everyone for whom he died. When your heart grabs a hold of these truths, these gospel truths, it's like you begin to see the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ with greater acuity. Like a blurry image gets sharper and sharper and the beauty that it reveals so captures the heart that it frees us, that it liberates us from the burden of having to make up for the Father's failed intentions. It frees us from the bondage of having to complete what the Son left unfinished. It points us away from ourselves and the labyrinth of our own doings, and it leads us to rest in the warm embrace of a Savior who declares in victory, it is finished. And we found that when we consider Scripture's teaching on those matters, on the design and nature of the atonement, that we are shut up to understand that the extent of the atonement is particular rather than universal. If the Father always accomplishes his intentions, and if his intention in the atonement was to save sinners, then all for whom Christ atoned will be saved. If the nature of an expiatory sacrifice is that it actually takes away sin, if a propitiatory sacrifice actually satisfies wrath, if Christ's work of reconciliation actually restores the relationship of God and sinners, and if redemption actually secures the release of captives by the payment of a price, well then everyone for whom Christ died will be saved. And since hell will not be empty, not, since not everyone without exception will finally be saved, we are constrained to conclude that Christ did not die for all without exception. As we've been saying, the efficacy of the atonement implies the particularity of the atonement. And so a perfect redemption must be a particular redemption. And last week, we looked into another aspect of the nature of the atonement that I mentioned is often not considered in the debate. And that is seeking to understand the atonement in the context of the high priestly ministry of Christ. We saw how often scripture speaks of Christ as the great high priest of his people. How especially the book of Hebrews borrows the conceptual framework of the Levitical priesthood under the Mosaic covenant in Israel. And, and in particular, the, uh, the imagery of the day of atonement in Leviticus 16 and presents Christ as the greater fulfillment of that entire priestly system. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession, Hebrews 3.1, having been designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek rather than the order of Aaron. There simply is no atonement divorced from the priesthood of Christ. 
to consider the extent of the atonement apart from Christ's new covenant priesthood is to take the atonement out of context. And as our great high priest, Jesus came to do what a high priest had always done, to offer sacrifice and to make intercession. He offered sacrifice by laying down his own life as the once-for-all sacrifice that took away our sins and satisfied the wrath of God. Hebrews 2.17 says that he is a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God because he took on human flesh in the incarnation in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. But in addition to offering himself as a sacrifice in his death, our great high priest now always lives to make intercession for his people, says Hebrews 7.25. And Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And we saw last week that from the very beginning of the concept of priesthood, this twofold ministry of sacrifice and intercession are inextricably linked. They are inseparable. We saw how on the Day of Atonement, the same priest brought the same blood from the altar of sacrifice to the altar of intercession how he was to take hot coals from the altar of sacrifice and use those very coals to start the fire of intercessory incense. And we saw how the high priest interceded for every worshiper who offered sacrifice. It could never be the case that a priest would refuse to intercede for anyone for whom he had offered sacrifice. That would be to abandon the work of the priesthood. Only a terribly faithless high priest would do something like that. No, the high priest offered for everyone for whom he would intercede, and he interceded for everyone for whom he offered. And so we also learned that the scope of priestly intercession was identical to and grounded in the scope of priestly sacrifice. They were co-extensive. And we found that Scripture teaches that the same is true for Christ's priestly ministry. He offers himself as a sacrifice for the very same number for whom he intercedes before the Father. Just like the Old Testament priests, Christ intercedes for everyone for whom he died, and he died for everyone for whom he intercedes. And then we ask the question, for whom does Christ intercede? all without exception, or the elect alone. And we found that in John 17, 9, he expressly and explicitly limits his priestly intercession to the elect. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so, since the priestly work of sacrifice and intercession are inextricably linked, so much so that the extent of those two priestly acts must be identical, coextensive, and since Christ says he does not intercede for the world, but only for his people, therefore it's right to conclude that he offered himself as a sacrifice, not for all without exception, but for those whom the Father had given him. The extent of Christ's atonement, like the extent of his intercession, is limited to the elect. And so that was last week. This week... I want to focus on a related point which is also often overlooked in discussions about the atonement and that is the concept of covenant. The two concepts, priesthood and covenant, are, as I say, intimately related. In Hebrews chapter 7, and you can turn there to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, the author argues that the Levitical priesthood could not have been perfect and that it awaited a perfect fulfillment in Christ because Psalm 110.4 prophesied of another priest who would arise according to the order of Melchizedek rather than according to the order of Aaron. Also in Hebrews 7.11, 
He says that it was on the basis of the Levitical priesthood that the people received the law. Well, what law? Well, the laws of the Mosaic Covenant. The law is a covenant law. Deuteronomy 29.21 speaks of the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God enters into covenant with the nation of Israel by revealing to them the law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 19.5, God says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. In other words, the keeping of the Mosaic Covenant was inextricably bound to the obeying of the law of Moses. And so back in Hebrews 7, verse 11, he says, On the basis of the Levitical priesthood, the people received the law, that is, received the Mosaic Covenant. And then in verse 12, he goes on, the author of Hebrews does. He says, For when the priesthood is changed... Of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. A change of priesthood requires a change of law, which is to say a change of covenant. Skip down to verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the former commandment, the law, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. This can only refer to the old covenant that showed us our sin but couldn't give us power to obey. And that becomes plain as we read on. Verse 20. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, Christ, with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. You see? A change of priesthood means there's been a change of law. And a change of law means a change of covenant because there was a setting aside of an old law and ushering in a better hope. And Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And he is the priest of that covenant according to the order of Melchizedek. The change from the Aaronic priesthood to the Melchizedekian priesthood is the change from the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant. And so the New Testament, and especially the book of Hebrews, reveals that Christ is the priest or the mediator of the New Covenant. We've already read Hebrews 7.22. Jump down to chapter 8, verse 6. Our high priest has obtained a more excellent ministry than the old covenant priests who served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Skip down to chapter 9 verse 15. The author says, Because his blood truly cleanses the conscience... For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Turn over to chapter 12, verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. And verse 24, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. And you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy 2.5, that wonderful verse, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus, the God-man, stands as the mediator between God and men, mediating as a priest the salvation blessings promised to those who partake of the new covenant. Blessings which this mediator won when he purchased, when he accomplished that great work of atonement on the cross of Calvary. 
And so Christ's being the mediator of the new covenant is absolutely essential to and inseparable from his priestly work of atonement. It is as this new covenant priest that Christ offers and intercedes for his people. His mediatorial work is the mediation of the new covenant. And in fact, in Isaiah 42, verse 6, the father tells the son that he's going to send him to save his people. And he actually calls the son a covenant to the people. He says the same thing in Isaiah 49, 8. I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people. So the son himself is the covenant. In Malachi 3, 1, the coming Messiah is called the messenger of the covenant. His atoning death is the death that is required by a covenant. Back to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16. You can turn there. Hebrews 9 and 16. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. And so Jesus dies to ratify the new covenant. His blood is the blood of the covenant. Look at Hebrews 9:19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. That's Exodus 24, 8. But does that sound familiar at all? At the Last Supper, Jesus gives the cup of communion to the disciples and tells them to drink of it. And he says, Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Luke twenty two twenty, 20, the phrase is this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And in Hebrews 13, 20, the author says that God brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And that everlasting covenant is, of course, the new covenant, which does not fade away. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 10. And so Christ's work of atonement cannot be abstracted from the new covenant. What he accomplishes in his priestly mediation of sacrifice and intercession, he accomplishes as priest of this new covenant. As one commentator put it, Jesus' whole work was a covenant work. His blood, a covenant blood. His priesthood, covenant priesthood. His office as mediator, a covenant office. And so if we are going to understand the nature and design and extent of the atonement, we must understand the atonement in light of the new covenant. And in my judgment, that raises at least two key questions. The first is the question of, our, of participation. How is this covenant established with those who partake of its benefits? How do I get into this covenant? How do I lay hold of the blessings that it promises? And the second question is of substance. What are the promises and benefits and blessings of this covenant that Christ purchases by his death? And so we'll spend the rest of our time this morning answering those two questions from Scripture. Similar to last time, after working through those two questions, we'll consider a significant objection that is often raised, and we'll answer that from Scripture as well. So two key questions. And in the first place, then, let's consider the question of participation. How is this new covenant established with those who partake of its benefits? And the answer to that question is union to the covenant head. Union to the covenant head. The blessings of the new covenant purchased by the atonement of Christ are communicated by virtue of our union to Christ, the head of the covenant. And for this, I want to start in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. You know it well because 
Pastor John has been working through Ephesians, and it was just a few short months ago that we spent a good amount of time in this opening paragraph. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Paul praises God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ. Every spiritual blessing that will ever be bestowed upon anyone is communicated to them in Christ, which is to say by virtue of the believer's union with Jesus. Christ has purchased by his blood every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and it is only as we are united to him that what he purchased becomes ours. And if we had time, we could walk through the New Testament and demonstrate how each blessing of salvation is said to come to us in Christ. We see so many in this passage alone. Ephesians 1, 4, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, adopted through Christ. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verses 10 and 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. And then verse 13, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are new creatures in Christ, which means regeneration is a consequence of union. Galatians 2.16 says we're justified in Christ. And so we lay hold of justification by union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 1-2 calls Christians those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you could say that the gift of persevering faith is by virtue of our union with him. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 calls us when we die, the dead in Christ. And so not even death severs this union. And 1 Corinthians 15.20-22 says that all who are in Christ will be made alive in glorification. And so maybe we had time after all. But from election to glorification, the only saving blessings granted by the new covenant are laid hold of by union to the head of the new covenant. Now, why do I use that language, head of the new covenant? Well, it's because Scripture often represents the believer's union with Christ as the relationship between the head and the body. Ephesians 5.23 calls Christ the head of the church, the Savior of the body. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says we are Christ's body and individually members of it. So much is that the case that what happens to Christ the head can be said to have happened to the body, the church, and vice versa. So in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 to 17, Paul says that if a member of the body of Christ unites himself to a prostitute, he unites Christ the head to a prostitute. In Acts 9, verse 4, the ascended Christ asks Saul why he is persecuting him. But Paul is not persecuting Jesus. Jesus is in heaven. Saul is persecuting Christians. But because the body is united to the head, what you say of the body can be said of the head. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting because you're persecuting my body. And we see this preeminently in the way that Paul talks about Adam and Christ because Adam and Christ stand as the two covenant heads of humanity. Adam was the head of the first humanity. And in Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, all die. Those in union with Adam bear the punishment of condemnation and spiritual death. You can go to Romans 5, if you'd like, if you haven't memorized it. Romans 5, chapter or 5, verses 19, or just verse 19, in the first half, Paul says about Adam, as through the one man's disobedience, the many... We're constituted sinners. Adam was the representative head of humanity. And by virtue of humanity's union with Adam, 
God counted the actual disobedience of Adam against all who were united to him. Well, in the same way, Jesus, the second and last Adam, is the covenant head of the new humanity. And so his obedience brings justification and righteousness to all who are united to him. In the second half of Romans 5.19, Paul says, Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be constituted righteous. And then back to 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That is to say that everyone united to Christ belongs to him in such a way that his obedience counts as our obedience. The very works of obedience to the Father that he accomplished in his life are credited to our account. And they make up that pure white robe of righteousness that each believer is clothed in in justification. And Scripture goes on to say that we have been crucified with Christ, Romans 6, 6. That we have died with Him, Romans 6, 8. That we were buried with Him, Romans 6, 4. That we were raised with Him, Colossians 3, 1. And we have even been seated in the heavenly places with Him, Ephesians 2, 6 says, in Christ Jesus. So do you see, what happens to the head happens to the body. This union with Christ is such that his life is our life, his punishment, our punishment, his death, our death, his resurrection and ascension, our resurrection and ascension, his glorification, our glorification. Everything that Christ did while he was on earth with respect to the accomplishment of salvation, his people are said to have done in him. And notice, it's not as if Christ performed his work of mediation without reference to anyone in particular, and then only after we've come to faith, we're credited with his actions. No. It says again, Christ's people are said to have been crucified with him and to have died in his death, which happened when? Once for all, 2,000 years ago. Not every time a new sinner repents and believes. Well, Christ is crucified again and you're crucified with him. No, you were crucified with him when he was crucified. Though they had not yet been born, God nevertheless in a mysterious manner, counts his people to be in union to their Savior throughout the accomplishment of his redemptive work. The body was always reckoned to be united to the head, even back to eternity past, because Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In him before the foundation of the world. Now, all of Christ's atoning work is inextricable from his role as the high priest of the new covenant, right? His blood is the blood of the new covenant and no other covenant. The only way to lay hold of those blessings purchased by the blood of the new covenant then is through union with Christ, whereby we are united with Christ in his life and his death, such that his doing and his dying is counted as our doing and our dying. Since the new covenant is entered into only by virtue of union to the covenant head, we must ask, with whom is Christ united? Are all people without exception united to Christ? Or is his union limited to, to the elect alone? Has anyone who has finally perished in unbelief ever been said to have been in Christ? No, because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so if they're perishing, that would have meant that they would have had to be separated from that. And that is not so. Has anyone who has finally perished in unbelief ever been said to have died with, to sin with Christ? Is it right to speak of any unbeliever as united with Christ in his death? 
No. It's impossible, in fact. If you're still in Romans 5, look down to Romans 6, where Paul says in verse 5, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So the only way we can lay hold of covenant benefits of Christ's death is to be united to him in his death. But Paul says that there is no such thing as union with Christ in his death without union with Christ in his resurrection. But will any non-elect person be raised to spiritual life with Christ? No. No one who has finally rejected the gospel will rise unto a resurrection of life on the new earth after the pattern of Christ's own bodily resurrection. No one who perishes in their sins will ever be united with Christ in his resurrection. And that means no one who perishes in their sins has ever been united to Christ in his death. Do you follow the argument? We can only receive the new covenant blessings of salvation purchased by Christ's death by being united to him in his death. Christ is not united to anyone in his death unless they are also united to him in his resurrection. No one who is united to Christ in his resurrection fails to be raised from the dead unto eternal life in fellowship with him. Not all without exception are raised from the dead unto eternal life in fellowship with him. Only the elect are. And therefore, not all without exception are united with him in his death. And his priestly work of atonement as the mediator of the new covenant was not for all without exception, but for the elect alone. It's a long walk, but it's a sound path. When you reason it out all the way, you find the tightness of the logic of the New Testament gives a sure ground for the answer to these questions. Well, the blood of Christ shed in his atoning death on the cross is the blood of the new covenant. And that being the case, then what his blood accomplishes in the atonement is that it purchases the promises and blessings of the new covenant alone. There are no blessings that accrue from Christ's death apart from union to him. And there is no union to him apart from covenant. And therefore, it is only the blessings of the covenant that traverse that connective tissue of union. Well, that brings us to the second key question. We've answered the question of participation. Now we come to the question of substance. What are the promises or benefits or blessings of the new covenant that Christ purchases by his death? Well, there are several passages in the Old Testament that prophesy the coming of this new covenant to replace the old. And we'll limit, it ourse- we'll limit ourselves to three. One in Jeremiah and two in Ezekiel, each of which speak of a time when God will regather Israel from exile and once again pour out his blessings upon them. Let's turn first to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 and starting in verse 31. This is one passage, the, the one passage in the Old Testament that mentions the new covenant by name. And it's the one that the author of Hebrews quotes in its entirety in Hebrews chapter 8 to say that the church partakes of this new covenant. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin 
I will remember no more. Turn now to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11 and verses 19 and 20. There we read the Lord announcing some of the same promised blessings. He says, and I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. And now turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. And we'll start in verse 25. God says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So, from these passages, what are the blessings of the new covenant that are purchased by the blood of the covenant? At minimum, there may be others, but they are certainly not less than first, spiritual cleansing, Ezekiel 36:25. Second, the removal of a heart of stone and the implanting of a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11:19 and 36:26. And what is that? That is regeneration. That is the new birth which brings forth saving faith in the heart. Third, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the heart, Ezekiel 36, 27. Fourth, the writing of the law on the heart, Jeremiah 31, 33. So as to ensure obedience, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Fifth, the knowledge of God such that evangelism becomes unnecessary. They won't teach each man his neighbor to say, no, Yahweh, be, be converted, repent, believe, come, to an, come into a knowledge of God. Why? Because they'll all know me. Sixth, restoration to a proper relationship with God. They will be my people and I shall be their God. And seventh, the forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah 31, 34. So these are the blessings that were obtained by the great high priest and mediator of the new covenant when he shed his blood, the blood of the covenant for those united to him. And so we must ask, do all people without exception receive these blessings promised in the new covenant? Do all people without exception Experience, spiritual cleansing, regeneration, spirit indwelling, the knowledge of God, the forgiveness of sins? No, sadly they do not. The only ones who can be said to be beneficiaries of the new covenant blessings are those who actually experience the spiritual cleansing, regeneration, faith, spirit indwelling, obedient life and forgiveness that was purchased for them. And who were they? They are the elect alone those who deny particular redemption they claim we've misunderstood they say well christ has provisionally obtained these new covenant blessings for all without exception but then he only applies those blessings to those who believe but that just won't do in the first place it militates against the efficacy of the uh, of the atonement inherent to every single term that scripture uses for atonement which we spent 5 weeks going through second it divorces redemption accomplished from uh, redemption applied redemption accomplished by the death of christ to redemption uh, applied by the intercession of christ it's to claim that christ offers himself as a priest in his death for those for whom he later refuses to intercede and we saw last week that that was an utter impossibility but third that's just not what these new covenant passages say is it? They don't say that the new covenant will provide the possibility of regeneration. They don't say that the new covenant will make the indwelling spirit and the forgiveness of sins 
available to you. They say that God will do these things. I will, I will, I will, over and over and over again. The blessings of the new covenant are salvation realities, not not salvation possibilities. John Piper makes this point when he observes this way, uh, the blood of Christ did not merely purchase possibilities, it purchased actualities. The faith of God's chosen and called was purchased by the blood of the covenant, Matthew 26, 28. The promise of the new covenant that a heart of unbelief would be replaced by a heart of faith was invincibly obtained by the death of Jesus. The term definite atonement refers to this truth. When God sent his son to die, he had in view the definite acquisition of a group of undeserving sinners whose faith and repentance he obtained by the blood of his son. So you see, Jesus does not die for his people as a mere romantic demonstration of how much he thinks of us. No, our great high priest dies because by his death, he secures the benefits of the new covenant for his people. And those benefits include the Holy Spirit's certain application of those blessings purchased by Christ's death. And that's the Trinitarian argument again. You can't have Christ buying blessings for people for whom the Spirit will refuse to apply them. That's message number two. Therefore, everyone for whom Christ has died cannot fail to be saved. And since not all without exception come into possession of such things, it's evident that the blood of the new covenant was not shed for them. Now, sometimes people say, well, okay, I agree that Christ's atonement purchased the salvation of the elect. But since scripture also says that he died for all, I think he died to do more than that. That he bought salvation for the elect, but then he purchased other non-saving blessings for the non-elect. Say, what would those be? Well, like the universal free offer of the gospel to all whom we come in contact with. Like other common grace blessings short of salvation. Like the blessings of family and friendship. Or the capacity to enjoy the beauty of the creation. Those are given to all men, even God's enemies. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in the universal free offer of the gospel as well as the existence of common grace. And while those are in some sense a logical, indirect result of Christ's atonement, I do not believe that the cross purchased those things. Why? Because common grace and the universal gospel offer are not provisions of the new covenant. We read nothing about them in all those passages that prophesy new covenant blessing. God doesn't have to punish Christ to be merciful to his enemies. That's simply his character. He is good to all. You say, what isn't that unjust for God to give good things to people without paying for them? Well, they'll pay for them. Those who finally reject Christ will pay for those blessings of common grace in in a greater accountability in hell. Or if they get saved, Christ will have paid for that spurning of common grace for the years that they've had it. But to suppose that Christ died to purchase non-saving benefits for all without exception is, as one theologian put it, to remove the work of Christ from its new covenant context. Christ's atoning work cannot in any sense be extended to all people without also extending the new covenant benefits and privileges to all, which minimally includes regeneration, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Spirit. If we did that, we would make Christ something other than the mediator of the new covenant. It would be to conceive of his blood as something other than the blood of the new covenant. But Scripture never says that. Christ Christ dies as the priest of the new covenant and not any other covenant. And so, we have answered the question of participation. Sinners partake of the blessings of the new covenant by union to the covenant head. And yet, since not all are united to Christ in his death, his atonement is particular rather than universal. And we've answered the question of substance. Christ purchases by his blood the blessings of the new covenant alone. 
And those blessings are salvation blessings. And yet, since not all are finally saved, his atonement is particular rather than universal. And that brings me to a third point, a significant objection raised against the argument that the high priest of the new covenant only mediates on behalf of those who eventually come to faith. These people argue, and this is a good objection, that on the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, the high priest of Israel offered sacrifice and interceded for both believers and non-believers. You say, well, how in the world does that work? Well, not everyone in the nation of Israel was a genuine believer in and follower of God. The assembly of Israel included believers and non-believers. That's why they had to go to each one his neighbor saying, know the Lord. The atonement accomplished by the high priest was offered on behalf of all of the assembly alike. But, these people say, it was only effective for the remnant of the believing ones. They argue in the same way that Christ's atonement was offered for all without exception, but is effective only for those who appropriate it by faith. How do we respond? Well, first, we must begin by observing that the ministry of the Levitical priesthood was strikingly particular. In Hebrews 5.1, the author describes the high priests as those taken from among men and appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. That's a description of the old covenant high priest. But both of those designations point to the personal, representational nature of the priesthood. The high priest was taken from among men. That means that he stood in solidarity with men. And that he was appointed on behalf of men meant that he was there to represent the interests of his fellow sinners before a holy God. Now, whom did the Levites represent before God? All people without exception? No, they represented the covenant people of Israel alone. No one else in the world. And that was nowhere more beautifully illustrated than by the vestments of the high priests of Israel. You'll appreciate this. Exodus chapter 28. You should turn there. You'll appreciate turning there is what I mean. You'll appreciate the scripture because it's the scripture. But Exodus uh, chapter 28, verses 17 to 21, tells us that the priests were to wear a breastplate that contained 12 precious stones which corresponded with and had the names engraved upon them, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. When Aaron entered the holy place to minister on behalf of the people in the presence of God, Exodus 28, 29 says, says that Aaron was to carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart. Verse 30, the names shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before Yahweh. This was an intensely personal representation of particular people. The high priest took names into the Holy of Holies and they were the names of the tribes of the nation of Israel. They weren't Edom and Moab. They weren't Egypt and Cush. They were Naphtali and Dan and Asher and the rest of the tribes of Israel. And I can't resist commenting that your high priest, friends, took names to the cross. And though he wasn't wearing a breastplate, your name, believer, was on his heart. That is why we sing, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The point here is there is never an indication anywhere in the Old Testament that a priest of Israel sacrificed or interceded for the Gentile nations or for the world in general. The covenantal blessings of atonement are accomplished only for those within the covenant community. That is key to understanding why the objection that we're addressing fails. Those who make the objection frame the comparison between old and new covenants as if the believing remnant of Israel 
corresponded to the believing church in this age. And then that the unbelievers in Israel corresponded to the unbelieving world in the present age. But that is an apples to oranges comparison. Instead, the proper analogy is that the covenant community of Israel corresponds to the covenant community of the church of believers, while the Gentile nations surrounding Israel correspond to the unbelieving world in the present age. For both covenants, the high priest offers and intercedes only on behalf of the covenant community. We've seen it before in our series, on, but on the Day of the Atonement, the high priest did not slay a goat on behalf of the Egyptians. There was no blood sprinkled on the altar for the Canaanites. Leviticus 16 is plain. The high priest made atonement, Leviticus 16, 16, because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Verse 17, for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. In verse 21, Aaron laid his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confessed over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. The priestly ministry was limited to the covenant community alone. You say, but it included unbelievers in it. Well, right. It is true that the covenant community of Israel was comprised of both believers and unbelievers in Yahweh. The Mosaic covenant was a national covenant such that all Israelites, elect and reprobate, believing and unbelieving, enjoyed the benefits of the covenant that was made by that nation. But that covenant didn't bring salvation. That's the whole point of Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. And so those who partook of the atonement in that covenant partook of an atonement of national cleansing, not final forgiveness of sins. For if an offering had been offered that was able to impart life, there would have been no need for another. For example, Ahab was a wicked king who did not know Yahweh, 1 Kings 16, 30-33. But even Ahab would have received the covenant sign of circumcision, according to Genesis 17.10. He would have had the privilege of eating the Passover meal, according to Exodus 12. Though he was a wicked king, he was a king nonetheless, and so he lived and ruled over the land that was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. Unbelieving Ahab experienced the blessings of the national covenant, even though he didn't know Yahweh. And that would have included the blessings of the Day of the Atonement in which the Lord granted that his wrath against Israel's sin would be temporarily, though truly, propitiated so that his anger would not consume them in a moment and cut them off from his presence forever. But it had to be done year after year. However, there is a marked discontinuity between the Mosaic Covenant community and the New Covenant community. Let's go back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 tells us that the Mosaic Covenant community was by definition mixed. Both true believers and unbelievers made up the covenant nation in whom Yahweh was united in in covenant. But in the language of Jeremiah 31, 34, like we said before, each man had to teach his neighbor and each man his brother saying, no Yahweh. So evangelism was a necessity within the covenant community of Israel. But a chief distinction, you may say the chief distinction between the old and new covenants is that the new covenant community, look at it, will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You see, the new covenant community is not the visible church. The new covenant community is the invisible church. By definition, the new covenant community will be comprised of only regenerate believers. Only those who know Yahweh. Only those who have the law written on their hearts. Only those who experience the full forgiveness of sin. There is no remnant within the new covenant community. 
And that's part of why the new covenant is so much better than the old. It's a better covenant enacted upon better promises because everyone embraced within this covenant is brought all the way home to salvation. Because of this, the priestly mediation of the high priest of the new covenant will not include any except who are his people. Unbelieving Israelites were embraced under the old covenant priesthood because unbelievers were embraced as a part of the old covenant community so long as they belonged to the nation by circumcision. But because the new covenant is a better covenant and saves all those within its embrace, the priestly mediation of the new covenant is particular and not universal. And so that discontinuity between the day of atonement for believers and unbelievers in Leviticus 16 and Christ's atonement now doesn't satisfy, doesn't hold up. Because to say that Christ sheds his blood for those who do not finally partake of its blessings is to make the new covenant worse than the old. Or at the very least, as bad as the old. Because it doesn't bring everybody. But what what does Hebrews say? It's a better covenant enacted upon better promises. So here we are again at the foot of the cross, marveling at the power of Christ's blood to save everyone for whom it was shed. And I pray that as we take so many looks at the cross from so many different angles, that you do see sharper and sharper images of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, It is most sweet to the godly to behold the beauty and enjoy the love of Christ the mediator. He appears the most beautiful to them of anything in the world. He is to them as the rose and lily, as a bundle of myrrh. His love is a sweet fragrancy. None can tell the power of that joy that they feel from the consideration that so lovely a person loves them so as to lay down his life for them. For them, for me, for me, not just for a faceless, nameless group, not just for anyone who chooses to fill in the blank. No, my name is engraved in precious stones upon the breastplate of my high priest. And to know that one so lovely as that one has so loved me as to lay down his life for me, to have united me to himself and to communicate then all of the blessings that he won by his own obedience and his own sacrifice. Oh, I can testify to the power of that joy. I can testify to how beautiful he appears to the eyes of the heart. I can testify to the sweetness of the love of Christ, my mediator. And I pray that you can say the same. I want to close with a quote from Spurgeon who ties a bow on this series, though I might have one or two more messages to go. But ties you over for a month away or so. Spurgeon says, we owe all to Jesus crucified. What is your life, my brethren, but the cross? Whence comes the bread of your soul, but from the cross? What is your joy, but the cross? What is your delight? What is your heaven, but the blessed one, once crucified for you, whoever lives to make intercession for you? Cling to the cross then. Put both arms around it. Hold to the crucified and never let him go. Come afresh to the cross at this moment and rest there now and forever. Then with the power of God resting upon you, go forth and preach the cross. Tell the story of the bleeding lamb. Repeat the wondrous tale and nothing else. Proclaim that Jesus died for sinners. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are full. We do testify to the sweetness of the love of a Savior who has accomplished all on our behalf, has left nothing undone, and who embraces within his arms, within the wonderful new covenant mediation, all those whom you have chosen, whom you have given to him, and whom you have promised inviolable to bring unto yourself in the last day.
That is all of our hope. All of our security rests upon the promise of God, upon a powerful, precious blood that always avails in the courtroom of heaven. And we pray that that vision of glory that we see as we behold the cross would strengthen in us a desire to live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we would conduct ourselves as if we could smell Calvary just moments ago taking place, that we could smell the flames of hell all around sinners in this world whom you have providentially ordered that we come in contact with, who can see the glories of heaven waiting for us before long so that we would look upon this earth only as a journey there to heaven. And that with heaven and hell so clear in our minds and the cross standing at the center of all of history, that we would be holy people, that we would be a people who mortify sin, and that we would be a proclaiming people, a preaching people, an evangelistic people that speak of this cross, which is so precious to us, to all whom we come in contact with, because we know that as the gospel goes forth from us promiscuously, that those whom you have chosen from before the foundation of the world will hear the voice of their shepherd and will come unto you by the mighty exercise of the Spirit's regenerative call and that they will lay down their arms and they will repent and bow the knee to Christ and put all of their trust in him for righteousness and we will get a front row seat to the grace of God at work. Entice your people, Father, by the glory of such things and make us faithful for your namesake. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.